Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and... Take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send your emails to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode. The Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, as always, Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening. I hear you're... Uh Looking on the bright side this week. Oh, it has been a fantastic week. It's, it's weird. Like sometimes I'll just I'll have those weeks where it's like one disaster after another, one fire after the other, and I get to Friday and I'm like, oh, thank God it's Friday. Oh God, it's Monday. And then there's other weeks like this week where it's like, man, everything's just I'm firing on all cylinders. Just happy. You know, it's it's uh, great to see when things happen like that, especially remind you during times where uh, things may look bleak in the world that. You can still have some good days here and there. Oh, 100%. Yeah, definitely. It, Yeah, it it makes you appreciate the uh, the good times, no no doubt about it at all. How was your week? You know what? Uh, it hasn't been terrible. I've had some uh, I've had some mistakes and then some time to think through some of that stuff. And I have a, a new attack plan and I'm feeling pretty good about it. So, you know, ask me in a couple of days when I execute on my new plan and see if I'm <laughs> still positive. All right. Sounds good. I will. And if you... Uh, if you crash everything and burn it to the ground, then uh, I guess we'll figure out that that didn't work out so well. Yeah, the more you know, right? I guess so. Hey, you can join the program. You can email us live at asknoahshow.com. You can give us a call at 855-450-NOAH. Stephen, I would love to take your call on the air. and We'd love to talk with you and discuss your Linux questions, your Linux problems. Our first email comes in from William. William writes in and says, hello, Noah and Steve. I'm rather new to your show, but I was hooked at the first episode I heard. I have some questions concerning the subject of matrix bridges you briefly briefly mentioned in episode 275. I've been a long-time Google Voice user and have been looking for a replacement for over a year. After hearing you talk about jmp.chat, I jumped on board. This was the service I've been looking for. Thank you for this recommendation. Now, what intrigued me further was your talk about matrix bridging. Per your recommendation of ARIA-NET, I signed up for a Matrix account and began to figure out how to make the bridge. I finally got it to work, but noticed that the communication over the bridge is not encrypted. Is this a concern? If I bridge an encrypted message from XMPP, it's not encrypted to my Matrix account. Doesn't that defeat the purpose of encrypting the original XMPP conversation? I also noticed that the bridge to Telegram is the same way. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on this. Thank you for the Ask Noah show, for the service you provide to the community. God bless. Uh, and then he includes uh, a scripture passage. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Philman 125. William. So a couple of things there. Um, I'll, I'll kind of work backwards. Does it defeat the purpose of encryption if it's if the if the bridges aren't encryption aren't aren't encrypted? Yes, it does. Um, if you're using two protocols that support encryption it is possible to have a bridge and maintain the end-to-end -end encryption. That often isn't possible because one side or the other, because one side doesn't support the encryption. So for example, on Telegram, unless you're using secret chats, the chats aren't encrypted anyway. When it comes to text messaging, 
the XMPP side can't you can layer encryption over XMPP. You cannot layer encryption over text messaging. So you would have an unencrypted message from the sender to JMP. You would have an unencrypted message from JMP to your XMPP server of choice. From there, you could choose to encrypt the message. But isn't it kind of moot if it was unencrypted for the first two hops anyway? That would be that would be how I would look at that. Now, if you look at something like the signal bridge, signal is unencrypted on the signal side. If you bridge that over to uh, matrix, you're going to have encryption on the matrix side. Uh, Steve, any any thoughts to add or or just blah blah matrix? Yeah, well, I I don't have anything matrix specific, but I was thinking. So you were, you commented about how. If you didn't encrypt all the hops, then what's the point? Well, I guess the point could be things about um, storing the message at rest and things of that nature. So, I mean, mm. there is something to be said that the only time the hops will matter is if someone is trying to sniff your traffic in real time. That's true. I, you know, I hadn't considered that. And the, I guess the other part of it is every time, every carrier or every service that has a copy of those message is an additional threat vector. Yeah. So, I mean, at at some point that's like saying, well, you know, seatbelt doesn't help you if you're speeding and you're not, you know, driving erratic. Well, I suppose, but it's probably better than nothing. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, Excellent follow-up. Our second email comes in from Kevin. Kevin writes in and says, hi, Noah, would you be able to recommend a core switch for my church? We have a couple of Cisco WSC 3560Gs, 24 PSs. They're still working great, except for a number of dead ports. We don't currently use any layer three functionality, but we do need PoE. We also have some NDI and Dante. Thanks, Kevin. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you, Steve. What have you seen uh, as far as core switch? Is there a particular brand, a particular model that when you go into large large places with large networks, you go, that's what I would expect to see? Well, I guess my definition of a core switch might be slightly different than what what a single church would have as a core switch but the most common the by far the the i guess there's two or three that i see all the time so f5 makes a huge load balancer and everybody has an f5 like it's it's hard to go somewhere that doesn't have an f5 load balancer because of that they tend to have more um other network equipment from there and cisco is also the other big one so i see a lot of a lot of big corporations that are using the the old you don't get fired by using X, you know, yeah. where X is Cisco or whatever. So I, I don't know that the old stodgy stuck in their way kind of corporation is necessarily the best way to go. I've mentioned this before on the show. I'll bring it up because I think it's relevant um, to this particular question. I, I work uh, part time for a fairly large um, broadcasting company, and when they were building out a multitude of studios, they uh, evaluated, they sent switches in to a company to have tested um, because they were going to build all of their audio over IP networks. And they sent, you know, all the major brands that that you would consider and sent them in and had them tested. The only switch to come back that actually exceeded their white paper specifications, but the only switch that even met them uh, was Cisco. All of the other switches didn't perform up to their stated specifications. Cisco not only met the standard, they exceeded it. So there is, it is very tempting in the network world and I'm kind of a cheapskate. So I fall into this a lot. Like, is it really worth the money? Are you paying for a name? And I think 99% of the time, 
the answer to that question is another brand will be just fine. Sometimes you need the best of the best. And if you need the best of the best, I would probably just stick with Cisco. The other part of it is if you have Cisco switches throughout your facility and you switch brands, if it were me and I had to maintain the network, I'd want all of at least a similar, if not the same model, similar models across the board. Um, and I'll tell you why. At, at, at our church, we use uh, HP 1950 switches, and I really like them for a couple of reasons. But one of the reasons I like them is because you can SSH into them. You know what that means? I can use Ansible to configure them. Um, and so when we purchase a new switch and I put it in somewhere, all I have to do is run a playbook against the, a, a new particular switch, and it can be configured. Um, now, I'm fairly new to getting some of that working, so right now uh, it's limited to some pretty basic stuff. But the more I learn about the command line interface on HP switches and how I can uh, configure it over SSH, the more powerful and the more automated it becomes. So that only works if all of them are similar make and model switches. If you have different ones, you're going to have to write different books for different switches or different plays for different switches, rather. Um, so for that reason, I would say look at what you have and can you afford to replace all of them? If you're looking for other brands and you want to get away from Cisco or you don't want to budget for Cisco equipment, I'm a big fan of Dell's. I've mentioned before um, we use the 1950s pretty extensively. I've been very happy with those. Um, previous to that, we were using the 1920s. The 1920s are great. They're getting harder to find. They're still technically a current uh, lineup from HP, but they are getting harder to find. Um, the 1950 has just a stellar web interface. And so it's great that you can SSH in. It's great that you can do that stuff from the CLI, but there's also something to be said about logging in, clicking on a picture and seeing which ports are lit up and toggling PoE on a particular port and saying, I'm going to restart that access point or that camera or that thing. Um, that's hard to beat. Another really popular brand of switches is Dell. I, I only have a limited amount of experience on Dell. And I think I shared this with you once, Steve. It was it blew my mind. By default, Dell will pass all VLAN traffic on all VLANs to all of the ports. So it just assumes that if a VLAN exists and it's and it's receiving traffic, it's going to it's going to take it on all of the ports, which to me feels kind of like a security nightmare. But if you I guess if you know that going in and then you go in there and configure your switch, which you should be doing anyway. Maybe it's not so big of a concern. Um, but everybody that I've talked to that has Dell switches at their facility loves them, uh, swears by them. And um, we looked for a brief time at potentially switching over that as kind of our standard go-to and didn't for a couple of reasons, but they're really good switches. So I would put Cisco at the top. I'd probably put, I'd probably tie Dell and HP for second place. Um, and then there's a bunch of other, you know, there's, you know, you've got your microtechs and, and a bunch of white label switches um, that have come out now that you can flash your own software and stuff like that. So that's an option you might want to go to. But uh, I stick with the HP 1950s. Um, and if I need the full performance or you're worried about full performance, I might just stick with Cisco. Our third email comes in from Charlie. Uh, Charlie writes in and says, G'day, I came across this tech story. I'm not terribly surprised this happens, but personally, I gave up on smartphones and the internet on phones. My phone was $90 Australian. It calls, it texts. I get two-factor authentication, SMS, and it's alarm clock, and it even has an FM radio. Without internet, it's a light. So he links to this article from the register that 
basically, Google has been collecting data in violation of the GPDR. So Google's messaging and dialer apps uh, for Android devices have been caught collecting and sending data to Google without specific notice and consent and without offering any opportunity to the user to opt out. And this, of course, is potentially a violation of Europe's data protection law. So according to a research paper um, that was published in, entitled, What Data Do Google Dialer and Message Apps on Android Send to Google? Uh, it, was pr- it was put together by Trinity College in Dublin, uh, and a computer science professor, Douglas Leith, uh, found that Google messages for text messaging and Google or Dialer for phone calls have been sending data about their user communications to Google Play services and uh, the clear-cut logger service and Google's Firebase analytics service. Quote, the data sent to Google Messages includes a hash of the message text, allowing linking of the sender and receiver in a message exchange, the paper says. The data sent by the Google dialer includes the call time and duration, again, allowing the linking of two handsets engaged in a phone call. Phone numbers were also sent to Google. From the Messages app, Google takes the message content, the timestamp, and generates a SHA-256 hash, which is the output of the algorithm that maps the human-readable content to an alphanumeric digest that is then transmitted a portion of the hash, specifically a truncated 128-bit value to Google's clear-cut logger and Firebase Analytics. Now, they claim that the hashes are designed to be difficult to reverse, but in practice, security experts say that they believe some of these messages could be, or some of the shorter messages, uh, the, the hashes could be reversed to reveal some of the message content. Now, the dialer app likewise logs incoming and outgoing calls along with the time and the duration of the call. Leith disclosed in his findings to Google last November, and he said that he's had several conversations with Google's engineers and director for Google Messages about the changes. The paper describes nine specific recommendations made by Leith and six changes that Google has already made or plans to make to address the concerns raised in the paper. The changes that Google agreed to include revising the app onboarding flow so that users are notified, notice not asked, that they're using the Google app and are presented with a link to the Google's consumer privacy policy. They also agreed to halt the collection of the sender phone number by the carrier service log source of the 5SIM ICC ID and a hash of the sent received messages text from Google Messages. They agree to halt the logging of call-related events in the Firebase, Firebase analytics from both Google Dialer and Messages. They agree that sh- to shifting more telemetry data collection to use the latest long-lived identifier available where possible rather than linking to a user's persistent Android ID. They make it clear that when a caller ID spam protection is turned on, how it can be disabled while also looking at ways to use less information or fuzzed information for safety functions. Google confirmed to the register on Monday that the paper's representation of its interactions with Leith are accurate. Quote, we welcome partnerships and feedback from academics researching including those at Trinity College, a Google spokesperson said. We've worked constructively with that team to address their comments and will continue to do so. The paper, of course, raises questions on whether Google's on whether or not Google's apps comply with GPDR, GPDR, excuse me, but cautions that legal conclusions are outside of the scope for the technical analysis. Leith said it's not clear whether Google's commitments fully address the concerns he's raised. Quote, in particular, they say that they will introduce a toggle within messaging to allow users to opt out of data collection, but that this opt out will not cover data that Google considers to be, quote unquote, essential, i.e., they will continue to collect some data even when users opt out. 
in my tests, I already had opted out of Google data collection by disabling the Google usage and diagnostics option in the handset settings. So the data that I reported on was already judged somehow to be essential by Google. Quote, the first is that logging data sent by Google Play services is tagged with the Google Android ID and can often be linked to a person's real identity. So the data is not truly anonymous. The second is we know very little about what data is being sent to Google Play services and for what purpose. The study is just the first that came in a light, but there's more. It's just the tip of the iceberg. So, I, you know, Steve, you're an Android user. I'm an Android user. Do you ever, and it seems like this stuff is a pretty constant barrage. Do you ever look at this stuff and say, you know what? I'm so sick of Google sticking their nose in my business that I'm just going to, and then, you know, but then what do you go to? Yeah. <clears throat> I've been considering moving to iOS for a while. Um, mostly because I, it's not that I think that Apple won't do something like this. It's just that it's not their primary business driver. And so unlike Google, where if they get a big back backlash, they'll just be like, yeah, you know what's pocket change, we'll pay that. Uh, Apple will change with the tides because they're more sensitive to the negative PR, especially since they've been trying to pimp their security story for all of their devices. Would you ever switch to something like Lineage OS or um, whatever the newest version, I forget what the name of the, the latest rendition of Copperhead OS is. I ran Lineage on all of my phones for the longest time. I have a Pixel 4a, and uh, I would definitely consider flashing it now. It's it's kind of like one of those things where um, for about two years, it's still partly Red Hat's property like they because they fund me. And then after that, mm. it becomes – it's a gray area, right? There's, they wouldn't say no because we're an open source company. But at the same time, like I'm still cognizant of the fact that if they said, hey, you know what? We helped pay for that thing. We want you to turn it in. Like, you know, that's a thing that I have to do. Sure. I, have, you, have you ever looked at Graffini OS? It's the evolution of um, Copperhead. I haven't. You know, Copperhead – uh, was a little bit too far to the security side mm. for me. Um, not that I might not get there one day. Uh, my phone usage is pretty basic. I need to have the, I need to have the Home Assistant app. I need to have a podcast app, and uh, Telegram. That that's basically all well, an email. That's basically my requirement. Did Lineage work for you when you used it? Yep, no problems. I had uh, my my cell phone died. I it, it suffered a horrible death. And one of the guys that works for me said, "Hey, I've got an old Nexus Six. It's slower than crap, but you know, it'd be better than nothing." And I said, "Sure." So we we took it. We tried to get it to boot. And we tried to get it. It's it just a pain. And uh, eventually took it. Said, just give me a minute. And so he took it. Took it back to his desk. Futzed around for a little bit. Threw lineage on there. Steve, that thing flew. It flew, and it's like six years old, seven years old, and it was it was insane how fast that thing was. So I ran with it for probably two, three months um, until I uh, budgeted and bought myself a, a new phone. And when I bought my new phone, that experience had shaped me to the point that I purchased a Samsung S10 precisely because it was one of the supported models that you could put Lineage on. So as soon as my carrier stops giving me updates, I'm going to throw Lineage on it and give that a shot. What's interesting to me about Graffinian OS is, so first of all, I trust the dude that's in charge of it because he essentially burned the keys when he when it came out that hey somebody's going to try to use those keys or potentially going to use those keys 
um, to do something malicious to users, he would rather burn the thing to the ground than compromise users. So that speaks obviously huge volumes about his integrity and character. But the other thing is um, he he builds these things specifically for the Pixel. And my understanding was that there is a hardware security chip in the Pixel that isn't available in a lot of other phones. And so the Pixel is the ideal hardware platform uh, for Graffinian OS. But like you, I don't have a ton of apps that I just have to have. I, there's just there's a few of them, and as long as they work, I'm happy with them. And Lineage really covers that. So um, those are kind of my two my two leading thoughts. And then of course I have I continue to hold out hope for things like the PinePhone Pro and and mobile Linux to get there. But I think we're a ways off from that. Yeah, I uh, I actually have a Lineage phone on my Nexus Five that I carry when I go overseas or whatever. So if I if I travel to Europe, I I either just plug in my SIM card back into the uh, the Nexus Five, or I get one while I'm over there and uh, you know call it a day. I leave I leave the actual primary phone at home. Our questions can be entertained at eight fifty five four fifty no it's eight five five four five zero six six two four. You can email us live at show dot com or you can mention you can message easy for me to say. Marlin, our questions bot, questions colon linuxdelta.com in the chat room at, at uh, geeklab.ninja. So Sunjam writes in and says, if my local ISP is providing us 10 gig fiber, where do I get the hardware to handle it residentially? Commodity does not seem to support beyond 2.4 gig on the WAN. And when I checked, TP-Link and Netgear Orbi routers are costing three to $400. Thanks for your thoughts. So Steve, what would you do if you were looking for a 10 gig uh, uh, WAN uplink um, and and wanted to get that from your ISP. Well, it depends. Are they running fiber to your house? Are they are they terminating fiber and running coax in into the houses? Are they uh, giving you an Ethernet um, connection? Like what what are the options? Because there's there's a bunch of different ways you could go with this. Like you could get um, and if they're if they're terminating Ethernet, which they were doing at my apartment where I used to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can just get a 10 gig Ethernet, uh, Nick, and they're not super expensive. They're not cheap, uh, depending on your hardware, but you could do that. You could get um, SFP. You could, there, there's all kinds of ways that you could skin this cat. What would you do? So a uh, couple of things there. I if, if you have, so are you saying you would build a box to do this? I'm just saying that you could, um, you could easily do, well, because I run PFSense, I guess the short answer is, Yes, I would just put Nix in the PF Sense, whatever it needed. Mm-hmm. So I I also run PF Sense. I'm I would look to uh, Netgate and their seventy one hundred U, and the reason for that is it has two SFP ports, and both of them are capable of ten gigs. So if you purchase the seventy one hundred U, now there, there's a there's a bit of a price tag associated with that sucker. It's about twelve hundred bucks, but if you have the budget for it, what it will allow you to do is you can buy an SFP module, either an Ethernet SFP module, or you can buy a fiber SFP module. So regardless of what your ISP is delivering you, um, you've got one box. And if they ever change, you just swap the SFP modules and Bob's your uncle, you're back in business. Um, my understanding is that you can expand those, uh, the, the, the 10 gigabyte, uh, 10 gigabit, excuse me, ports and get a total of four. There's an expansion module that you can buy. Um, so that is, that's one route you could go. I'm with Steve. If you're looking to do it on the cheap, 
I would probably just purchase some some NICs and throw it in a spare PC or even purchase a, a small PC and, and put some 10 gigs NICs in there. JJ messages the question button says there seems to be a lot of anecdotal stories about how tech has improved the health and saved people's lives, especially with Apple watches. Some beneficial for those who want to have a little nudge for a healthier lifestyle. When does a product's benefits outweigh the open source yearnings? Pine time is still a work in progress and seems a little bit too experimental for some. Steve, what are your thoughts? Is it, uh, if, if it saves your life, does that mean that it's probably an okay place to make a compromise for the license? I mean, there's always pragmatism, um, but you have to decide whether it's pragmatism out of laziness or pragmatism out of um, no other option, I suppose. And I, I would say that if you're talking about getting a nudge to be healthier, that's pragmatism out of laziness. I, I understand that people need to have or would like to have some additional notifications or those sorts of things. But realistically, if you set this, if someone said you get $3 million if you lose five pounds at the end of the month, I guarantee <laughs> you, you don't need an Apple Watch to do that. But Steve, right? I forgot to exercise. I didn't know what my heart rate was. Yeah. So, I mean, like that gets into, um, you know, are you being pragmatic because you are being a data nerd and you're optimizing for heart rate or oxygen, oxygenation in the blood and all that sort of stuff? What is your line? So I'm, I'm a relative pragmatist. However, on the face of this question, I immediately went, mm, there's almost no benefit that outweighs the, the open source yearning just because most of that stuff is, mm, well, let me put it this way. Uh, when I see a, a really interesting feature set on a device, I immediately look to see, can I open this device? And if I can't, I don't buy it. Mm. So uh, because, you know, I've got food, I've got shelter, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs has been met. And everything after that is just kind of like, I don't really need this. So why would I spend a thousand dollars on this thing that, you know, for me violates uh, a core feature? Having said that, like I said, there is some level of pragmatism where if if you're trying to achieve a thing and you can't or it's extremely difficult to do that with the open source, I mean, by all means, go ahead. You make that call for yourself. So last weekend I was down in um, I was down in Fargo doing some work and uh, my kids came down that night and there was there's a um, there's a there's a resort in the in, in, down in Fargo. And so we took them uh, out to that and there's a hundred and fifty foot water slide. So my girls are going down the water slide and I tell my son, you should go down the water slide. No, I don't want to. So everybody has a price. What's your price? So he tells me a pine time. That's what he wants. And if I give him a pine time, if I buy him a pine time, he'll go down the, the slide. So, okay. So he goes down the slide. And so we go get, uh, we, we, we get back and open up the laptop and start going through pine 64's website. And what was interesting is he, the first question he asked, what can I load on the pine time? What, operating systems are available to me. And so we started going through a lot of the operating systems and a lot of them are microcontroller operating systems that are designed, you know, you put your app on top of it. And then of course there's Infinitime, which is the thing that it comes with. So we kind of look at that and okay, I, I might like Infinitime. What are my choices for the Pine Time? And you know, there's the developer kit, which the back doesn't actually attach to. So you can get into the, the, the you know, the serial uh, debug port or whatever and, you know, flash as many times as you want. Or you can buy the sealed one, which has a back on it and it's sealed, but if you bork the flashing of the operating system, you brick the watch. 
Um, and so he thought about it a little bit, eventually went with the sealed one. But throughout that process, you know, he went through Infinitime and was reading every single commit from the very first uh, software version all the way up to the latest. And what was interesting to me about it is most people, I feel like when you go into a store, you look at the watch and say, what can it do, right? And yet when we comes to open source or when it comes to open tech, oftentimes we, we flip that on its side and say, well, this thing over here can do that. So can this thing over here do that? And, and it starts to be a comparison. And it was kind of refreshing to watch my son go through this and say, oh, this version, they added that, this version, they added that. So I can do this, 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 and this with the pine time. That's kind of cool. And it was this very organic, very, oh, I can explore. And this is what that will do for me. That's kind of cool. And he didn't, he doesn't yet have anything to compare it to. So to him, it's just all positives. It's just all cool. So we'll see if that changes when his pine time arrives. Um, but, I, you know, he has set his expectations of I won't be able to see the time. I want to get notifications from my device and I want it to pop up on the, the, the watch and I want it to have a decent battery life, um, which seems reasonable. Rusty writes in and says, hello, I'm looking for an Android app plus a NextCloud app combo that will allow me to drop pins on a map, preferably with a photo or points of interest. I would like to use this for sharing hiking and to mark potential camp spots. I'd like to be able to share this with my wife without sending a GPX file after each trip. There's a desire to use my NextCloud instance. If nothing for NextCloud, I'd still be open to other suggestions. Thanks. Steve, you have anything for sharing location? Uh, not really. Like, I, I've, I've heard of a few things here and there, but it's old news, like old, old knowledge. And I don't know where those projects stand anymore because... Because of my tinfoil hattedness, I'm I'm anti-tracking, even if it's for like the closest thing I get to this is is I allow my watch to to kind of map out when I run, and mm. that's as far as I go with that. So we've mentioned it on the on the show uh, a few different times, but own tracks is one of the uh, is one of the go tos. I don't know of any way to do this with Nextcloud specifically. I know that was kind of the question, but. Don't know of any way to do that with Nextcloud specifically. Um, own tracks is kind of the self-hosted location sharing thing. Um, so I'll put a plug for that. And then the other thing is uh, Element released end-to-end encrypted uh, location sharing. And so th- you you have the ability to drop a pin and share that with another person. Uh, and the way they went about it is really fascinating. We won't go into it uh, too much here tonight but in general we'll have the link available podcast.asknoahshow.com i highly recommend you go through and read how they're doing it um so they jump through a couple of hoops to try to get it so that you know if you're pulling map data um even the person who has the map data doesn't know what user is requesting that information so that no one company has enough of the pieces to put together who's requesting um location stuff so that's probably what i would do is is one of those things either host own tracks or, or use something like element but Either way, uh, there are open source ways to do this and ones that will, um, at least if you take the word for it, respect your privacy. Hey, the show only works if you participate. The whole idea of the show is we want to serve the community. Steve and I come here and, man, if we ever count, cal- you know what we should do sometimes, Steve? Calculate the amount of money that if, if we took your billable rate and my billable rate and added them together and then how many shows we do in a month and what would that cost for that information to get back out that but we do that because we want to serve you we want to help you but for that to work 
We have to get your feedback. You have to write in and let us know what things are you working on? What projects do you have? What trouble have you run into? What are your questions? And then there's two ways that we either handle this. If it's a one-off question, if it's a one-off idea, we just address it here on the show and we'll use it. We can keep you anonymous if you'd like to, or we can cite your name. However you sign the email, that's what we'll use. If we get a lot of people that ask the same thing, and this does happen from time to time, we'll get 10, 15 emails on one particular topic and people just come in over and over and over again and say, hey, I really want to know more about this, that, or the other. We'll take those and we'll put them together into a segment, and then that becomes something like what you're going to see the later half of the show. For that to work, again, you've got to write in at live at asknoahshow.com. We look forward to hearing from you. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. Linux Mint Debian Edition 5, based on Debian rather than Ubuntu, has been released. The Linux kernel gets new random number generation code. Ashi Linux reaches early alpha stage for the Apple M1 Max. Ubuntu has updated its logo. ICOP has announced that its x86-based Vortex 86 chips are now automatically detected by Linux 5.16, thereby enabling new non-legacy applications. Nexopass is an open-source point-of-sale system built with Laravel, Tailwind, Vue.js, and other open-source tools. GCobol, an open-source COBOL contender, emerges as a direct-to-binary compiler for the 63-year-old programming language. A recent heap-out-of-bounds write CVE in the Linux kernel's NetFilter firewall code has been announced. Wallace has reported that roughly two months after its discovery of Log4j last year, around 30% of Log4j instances remain vulnerable. Several developers have decided to use their open-source code as a form of protest against the war in Ukraine. Regardless of their intentions, this will only hurt the public image and perception of open-source software. In more uplifting news, a new open-source miniature brain microscope, dubbed Mini2P, allows researchers to study neural network activity at high resolution in animals behaving naturally. And the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit recently affirmed a lower court decision concluding that it is false advertisement to claim that software is open-source when it is not licensed under an open-source license. In our first storage segment, we asked you, hey, was this any good? Did you like this? Would you like us to do it again? And the overwhelming response was, yeah, we care for that. In fact, Steve said, I can't believe how many people wrote in to say nothing other than, hey, I like the storage segment. You guys should do that again. Um, so to that end, we've invited Linux Ninja back. Welcome in, sir. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to be here. So we're going to do part two of our storage segment. Now, I invite you to go back and listen to part one if you haven't done that. It does, you don't need to do that to get anything out of this segment, but I strongly suggest that you do. Go back and check out Introduction to Storage, episode 274. You can find that at podcast.asknoahshow.com. In that episode, we started with the basics. We started with storage medium types. And we've primarily focused on direct attached storage, that is drives that are attached right to the machine. In this segment, what we're going to do is we're going to expand that to talk about network attached storage. So I guess to start, uh, let's start with Steve. What is network attached storage and why is that beneficial over traditional direct attached storage? So net, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, network attached storage is a way to to share stuff over the network. So 
this would be an NFS server, a Samba server, things of that nature, where it's just basically serving files for you. And it tends to be the best use case for files, for file shares and for uh, things that are like that you need flexible storage for, like you need to be able to slam some disks into this. Um, you don't have uh, any kind of constraints like there in, in businesses and sometimes in your home, if you're getting really fancy, there are different types of storage in terms of you've got file storage, you've got block storage, you've got object storage as the three big ones. So a NAS or network attached storage is less good at doing the uh, direct, the object storage. And it's definitely not so, so well suited for anything other than file storage. So it's really good there. It kind of gets bogged down when you're throwing a lot of load on it. Where do you typically see network attached storage um, from home users? If if I'm if I if I'm in my house, do I need network attached storage, or really would I be better off just with an external hard drive? I mean, it depends on what you're trying to do. For my house, I definitely need a NAS. Um, I could go with something even more because of the the stuff that bleeds over into my work life. But even discounting work life, I have Plex. You know, I've got Nextcloud. I've got all of these different things that require require file storage, and it's just more efficient to have that kind of in a centralized location. So most people are going to benefit from a from a NAS if they need file storage for multiple different types of either servers or VMs or different applications, or maybe they just want to be able to share files easily. Uh, it's going to be a better use case more flexible, I should say, than ha just having a external drive plugged in somewhere. What do you use or what do you recommend to family and friends who say, hey, I want to have storage available on the network. I want to be able to plug in all my computers and I want them all to be able to access the share, or maybe I want all my TVs to be able to access my media. Um, what do you use? What do you recommend? Who's my audience? I guess that's my question. Um, let's say very techy uh, home users slash people who are talking about their home, but also maybe work in IT? So in this case, you could go with, with something like a TrueNAS or um, something similar. There, there's tons like Open Media Vault and, and things like that. I personally like things that I can have a little more granularity on. So I tend to actually roll an operating system and then kind of admin the storage that way. That's not everybody's favorite. If you're super technical and you want to get into doing iSCSI and stuff like that, I'd say TrueNAS is a great place to start because you don't have to know anything about how iSCSI works. You just go into the UI and do a bunch of clicks and say, go, and then you're all set. And so that's been pretty fantastic. So you install a base operating system, you put the file system that you want on there, and then you share it out the way that you want to share it. And it's really a server with, configured the way that Steve wants it. Yep, pretty much. Uh, I, I, I just, I'm just old school. I'll give you just a quick aside. Mm. So I was explaining to someone we we have this problem where the other side of our connection between two computers didn't have SCP, didn't have rsync, and because it's a client, we couldn't go and install these things. And I said, here, let me teach you a way that we did this back in the day when we didn't even know if we had SSH. You know, if you can run a remote command. You can cat whatever you're doing, like a tarball, to the screen and redirect it to mm. a file on your computer, and that will transfer a file over the network for you. Really? So I do, like, I 
I'm one of those never really adapted very well to graphical interfaces for <laughs> for the most part for some things. But you know, I grew up learning all these little hacks to uh, get around limitations, and so it just kind of bleeds over into how I handle storage. Linux Ninja, I want to get I, I want to get your thoughts. So obviously, you have. Uh, some some experience to say the least working with uh network attached storage and then later down the road i want to get into storage area networks what are your preferences when you go to set something up what things do you look for in a nas what things do you like what things do you try to stay away from well in my experience with using different nas solutions i found that um these companies like to try to differentiate by integrating additional software into the NAS appliance. And I've not always been thrilled with that because you find, you know, security compromises or extra bells and whistles that, that cause problems. And I think there's a lack of understanding about the difference uh, between like a DAS or a NAS solution where a NAS is a remotely presented file system that can be shared by many clients. A, a DAS, a direct attached to storage, is more of a block device. It's something you would format and put a file system on that's attached to you know a particular machine. Um, and I know we're going to talk about SANS, and that you know gets into a little bit different discussion. But you mentioned iSCSI earlier in association with a NAS, and that's kind of a crossing the line feature. That iSCSI you think about as more of a DAS technology where you are presenting a block device to a particular machine over a network connection. So you may find some uh, NASs that uh, perform as if they were a DAS. So they can kind of do either one. Um, I've seen um, various brand names, various model numbers, all you know, presenting different methods of connectivity um, where they all have their own little feature sets. But uh, for me, I, I'm kind of like Steve. I, I like to keep it simple. Uh, I don't like all the extra fluff. So you mentioned block storage. I want to dig into a little bit about storage types. So tell me a little bit about file, block, and object storage. Uh, Steve referenced that. What is file, block, and object storage? How are those different? And where are the appropriate use cases for each? Well, a block storage device is something that you would typically plug into your computer like a hard drive or a USB flash drive that you would then need to, say, format and put a file system on so that you can organize your data into like a hierarchical tree. If you have something that is a file storage device that already has a file system on it, um, you're doing reads and writes, um, saying with file names. Um, an object storage device, and that's something like um, like Amazon um, S3, is you are sending objects over that are not um, necessarily hierarchical, but you are um, saying, I need this blob of thing stored there that I can retrieve later, and it doesn't have the typical access control list and time date stamps, and there's no real easy way to do like a directory listing without having another layer of software on top of it. So object storage would be good for something, um, say, running inside of an application to do persistent um, stateful storage, where a file system is something that you'd want a human to be able to react with. And um, so when you're looking at these things, what is most appropriate for uh, for most people, obviously, it depends on uh, largely on what you're doing. But if you're sitting in your house or you're sitting in your small business, are most people looking for file block or object storage? 
most people at home will be looking for file storage, but how they accomplish that may be a combination of technologies. Uh, they may have a NAS uh, device or appliance or just a typical file server that has drives attached to it using DAS, which may be an interface cable connecting to what, uh, something we commonly call a shelf, which is simply a... Um, a uh, stack of hard drives are all you know plugged into a backplane that present themselves as a uh, single storage device. Mm. So you said, like Steve, you like to keep it simple. Can you can you be uh, can you elaborate a little more on on exactly what you do? So your what do you have, or what would you set up at your house, or for your friend's house, or for a family's house? For now, specifically. Does that make sense? Did we lose Steve? No, nope, uh, that was for you. Oh, sorry. I thought you said Steve. Um, for someone at, at their own house, um, you know, this is as opposed to what I would do, uh, where I build my own file server, I buy a bunch of uh, hard drives and put in it, and I run Linux on it. Um, I would say get a reliable appliance that has the capacity for what you would plan on expanding to. And just keep an eye on it and replace the drives as, as they go out. And I know Synology makes a, a good appliance. Um, QNAP, uh, probably a little bit higher level than Synology. Uh, Synology also uh, provides some applications that run within that OS that allow you to do things like uh, web-based driven file sharing and, and media and retrievable. And you can also mirror these uh, where you can have one sitting in your house, one sitting in someone else's house, and they can back each other up. Same thing goes for like a true NAS appliance. So for someone who isn't in the um, depth of Linux that we are, um, those are ready-made things that if it should die, you can go you know, buy a replacement, move your drives over, and be back up and running. I would just caution that one specifically because um, my dad had a like a, an off-the-shelf NAS sort of thing, and the motherboard died on it, and we could not get a replacement. And so the data was gone on those drives just because we couldn't get anything that actually read, reads them. Mm. So you have to be careful about which ones because there are some, there are some that use um, Linux under the hood and just do some form of fancy LVM and, and you're all good. And then there are others that it's kind of like plugging them into a RAID device where uh, if you don't have the exact same RAID card, it's just not going to understand what's happening on that drive. So you got to be got to be careful with that one in terms of the long-term viability for retrieval of storage. You That's certainly good. don't want to run them past their end of life when they're no longer supported, and they are not a backup. They need to be backed up, and many of them offer a cloud backup solution. I agree. It's just if the, the in my experience, the people that are likely to go get this are going to run it until it dies, and they're not going to back it up because <laughs> the, the files are off their computer, and that is the backup. And so, uh, so what I'm hearing or what I'm taking away from that is it, you both of you have this very consistent message. If you sticking with standards and the lowest common denominator, there's less things to bite you. That's kind of what I'm taking a away from that. Why do you like QNAP or why do you classify QNAP as a slightly higher end device? What features or things stand out to you? Well, I'm not going to typically see a Synology in a larger business where I would see a QNAP regularly deployed, say, in a data center. Really? The well, QNAP has higher-end devices that um, you know are geared towards uh, enterprise. And what file systems are supported on the QNAP? 
it's been a while since I've touched them. Um, back when I was using them, it was uh, very simple. Um, I'm sure that the things have evolved since then, and I haven't looked at them lately. They support uh, EXT4, and um, lots of people call it ButterFS. I prefer to call it BTreeFS because that's what the algorithm is. But um, because they're largely a, a Linux thing, I, I believe it's Linux, but it's some form of um, some form of Unix under the hood. They will support those types of of file systems, but I believe the EXT4 is the default. I want to talk. I want to talk a little bit about storage area networks. So, briefly, Steve, what is a storage area network? We understand what a NAS is. What What is a storage area network, and how does that relate to network attached storage? So, this it it stands for storage area network, and it's meant for like high performance. So, you're going to find these things in data centers and all of that sort of stuff. So it's, you're talking about like mission critical applications and this is largely what my clients will be using. They'll, they'll have a giant SAN somewhere and it, it runs usually has its own network um, or, or multiple networks for administration and um, data backplane so that it has a lot of bandwidth to do a lot of transfer. So if, if you're doing balancing between different SANs or, there's a dedicated plane for that and then there's one for people who access it and then there's one for people that that need to admit it and there as you can imagine this makes it more complex and also more expensive and uh, they often are running on fiber channels so they may that makes it for high throughput and low latency as long as you don't step on the fiber cable <laughs> i won't say how many people have done that <laughs> I sense a personal story in there. Uh, yeah, so that that's largely what what uh, SAN is used for. Now, what kind of storage type are SANs using? Are they block, object, or file storage? So with with the professional stuff, you can actually get into all of them. Uh, like Linux Ninja was saying, they'll often pile extra services on top of the uh, on top of what their core is. Oftentimes they are doing block or object, and then you can pile a file system on top of that. Although I have found that a lot of clients are still running some NFS type appliance as well as having a SAN. So I guess it really depends. Linux Ninja, what kind of SANs have you seen out there? What do you like best? And what do you think is most appropriate for the prosumer geek that wants to start playing with SANs? Well, my experience with SAN has been in the data center space. Um, I won't name names, but they're they're all pretty much the same when it comes to the high-end cabinets. And it's basically a large um, array of drives that um, in in planning what to put in them, you typically provision them per uh, server. So if I have a server in the data center, I want to connect it to the SAN, uh, I spec my requirements. I need um, a SAN uh, LUN or a logical unit for, um, say, a database. And I say I need it to be RAID 10. I need it to be composed of these drives, of this speed, and of this capacity. And they'll put those drives together, and they'll assign the LUN, connect it over fiber to the server that's in the rack, and it allows the server to access uh, typically block storage over that fiber connection using hardware that doesn't physically exist inside the server. You may have just a little one-use server that 
just cannot contain that number of drives or doesn't have the hardware inside to, to talk to drives you know, using that sort of controller. But in clustered uh, environments, you may have a line that's assigned to multiple machines. Uh, an example might be um, a low-balance web farm. You may have three or four uh, servers in the data center running Apache, all of them connected with fiber to the SAN, all of them uh, looking at the same LUN. And being able to run a, a clustered file system on top of that allows the network load balancer to send traffic to multiple servers that all have the same stateful data on the back end. So it's case by case. But one of the unique features of the SAN is from the storage manager aspect, being able to manage and monitor the health of the drives, do hot drive replacements, migrate LUNs from one set of drives to another to be able to grow the LUN as the, uh, as the needs progress, adding more drives to the array, and not being restricted by how much physical space you have inside of a particular server cabinet because these things are massive and they usually use redundant connections and redundant backplanes so that no single point of failure is going to take down your storage. So, Steve, somebody out there is listening to this and they're saying, hey, that sounds really cool. I want to go play with that. I want to go set that up. What are some of the interconnect methods that can be used to build a SAN? What do you like? The, uh, I, I don't know if it's the cheapest, but I, I personally like InfiniBand. It works really well. You can get 40 gigabit or higher, and it's relatively cheap now because it's an older technology. So it's not something you're going to plug into your desktop because the cables are really short in order to do that. You can also go with fiber. Um, I probably wouldn't, even if I really wanted to play with the SAN, I probably still wouldn't try and build one myself. Um, that's just... It's too complex, and I don't have the, I don't have the time or the knowledge to be able to think one out properly. What would you buy? I wouldn't buy a SAN. There, I literally have no use case that I can fathom in my house, even with the I don't know fifty computers or whatever that I got scattered all over the place. No, there's nothing that I I would ever use this for at home. Are there any open source uh, software? platforms for a SAN that somebody could explore or play with that either of you are aware of? I mean, I guess you could say Ceph might do these sort of things, right? It, it, it's so OpenShift has the OpenShift data. Um, I think it's OpenShift data foundations. I can't remember what the F stands for. And it attempts to do a software version of this type of thing. Um, but you know, these softwares are very complex, but I'll kick this over at Linux Ninja to see if, what he has to say. I haven't seen anything that might be within the budget of a typical home user, but I know that Dell, the last time I used them, was making some of the smaller sand shelves that if someone had a significant amount of money, they may want to play with. Um, but it was iSCSI and not fiber. Okay. So it sounds like SAN is one of those things that it's great for business and large scale uh, corporations, probably not something that you're going to dig into at your house and play with. I mean, there's no need for it unless you're serving a data center. Like if you're Alan Jude and your data center <laughs> is in your basement as a backup, mm -hmm. then sure. But, you know, how many people are you going to have hitting this thing? Like like my my NAS can probably handle, I don't know. I could I could have too many people in my house before I would be able to saturate my NAS at this 10 gig links. Well, 
Fair enough. That gives people something to think about. It gives people something to chew on. There's absolutely going to have to be a part three of this. There's just more stuff to get to. Want to talk about raid designs. Want to talk about drive configurations. Want to talk about the 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 different ways that you can use all of this, sharing it out over the network. So if you guys would indulge me in a part three, I'd love to have you guys back. Why not? Sure. Thanks for taking the time, guys. I appreciate having you. Uh, the music in our ears means we're out of time. Hey, the show is recorded every Tuesday night at 6 p.m. Central. We invite you to join us live at AskNoahShow.com. You can get all of the show notes, all the things, the references, the articles that we use to build the show. They're available to you at podcast.AskNoahShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Colonel Linux. You can follow him at Linux Ovens, the show at AskNoahShow. We're back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week.